Hey everyone, I'm Tyler, and this is The Deal Podcast. I created this show as part of my work as an investor at Antler. I wanted to speak to the world's best VCs, pick their brains about what they look for in deals and what they're excited about in the future. we have Tyler Tringus. Don't worry, we kept the Tyler v. Tyler jokes to a minimum. Tyler is the founder of The Calm Fund. The Calm Fund invests in what they call calm companies. Calm company is, in Tyler's words, a company that may not necessarily be the world's next unicorn, but is important nonetheless and can create very profitable returns for investors, for employees, for the founders, etc. Tyler is very passionate about challenging the notion that all small business investments must be distributed on a power curve and believes there is a massive market right for disruption, investing in middle tier companies that are focused on profitability, that are focused on sustainable growth, and whose founders don't want to live the traditional make a Showtime series about the spectacular explosion of my company documentary at the end of building. Really love this episode. I love getting into Tyler's mind and hearing his thoughts about how venture capital can evolve and continue serving a larger and larger target market. Without further ado, this is Tyler Tringus from the Calm Fund on the deal. All right. Hey, Tyler. Thanks a lot for being on the show today. Hey, Tyler. Thanks for having me. <laughs> We already, I promise uh, that'll be the only Tyler <laughs> We already got all of our Tyler squared humor out before we started recording, so we wouldn't expose uh, listeners to it. Um, <laughs> so, Tyler, you are co-founder, managing partner of Calm Fund. Um, for people who don't know Calm off the top of their head, can you give us a quick rundown? Sure, yeah. So, uh, Calm Company Fund is a fund that I started about three years ago. Um, we, the most notable thing about us is that we operate on a pretty different thesis than most traditional, uh, venture funds. So, uh, originally we kind of described this as like funding for bootstrappers. The basic premise is there's all these opportunities out there to build software companies or software enabled companies that can grow, can be profitable, can be great businesses, but maybe are not a fit for venture capital either. You know, it's not a winner take all market or the market's not big enough, or they just don't want to run their company, you know, with that playbook. Um, we basically said, okay, let's work backwards from those folks who, who we know pretty well and try to design a fund, a capital partner, you know, with all the kind of bells and whistles, you know, mentorship, community, all that sort of stuff. Uh, but through the lens of what we call calm companies. Um, yeah. Love that. And I want to dive in because I think it's fascinating what you guys are doing and it really goes down to the core of like the math behind venture capital. Like you guys went all the way down to like the underlying model and said like, if we change the way that model works, there can be different outcomes and different deals. But how did you arrive at Calm? Like, were you building bootstrap companies yourself? Were you frustrated with venture capital? Like, how did you arrive at a place where you're like, Hey, I want to build something that kind of fundamentally offers a different option from venture math? Yeah, um, it's very much a scratch your own itch sort of project. Um, so different parts of my life kind of fed into this thesis. Um, you know, early on in my career, uh, I, I didn't have a background in tech. I, w I worked in clean tech, um, more like on the kind of consulting financial side of things. So I was yeah. analyzing like solar and wind markets and stuff like that. <coughs> and uh, the first startup I ever started, you know, I took the leap from there to um, kind of the intersection of software and, and solar. Uh, so basically like a rocket mortgage style sort of thing to make it way easier to uh, switch your home to, to solar, which at the time, you know, 12 years ago was a very, very cumbersome process. Um, yeah. And, you know, I started, I think I was pretty naive about, you know, the, the sources of capital and, and how that world works. And also there was a lot less you know, transparent material in terms of blog posts and things like that. So I was just like, okay, this thing has software. I need some capital to get it going, you know, and I have a plan to build a nice big business. I guess I should talk to VCs. And, um, you know, we hustled pretty hard. We got meetings with 
pretty much every like seed, pre-seed, super angel, VC you can name um, that was that was active in that period. I think I still have a spreadsheet of something like 350 people that we <laughs> met with. Um, yeah. And, you know, we basically learned that there's this non-overlapping, not completely overlapping Venn diagram between like good business ideas and business ideas that VCs want to fund. The business ended up basically just failing because we we got into this loop that you see a lot where, you know, the, the actual idea and the market just wasn't quite a fit for venture, but we needed money. So we were talking to VCs. And so we would keep kind of like trying to shift course into something yeah. that, you know, they would fund. Um, and that loop just basically <laughs> killed the business. Like, and it was a great idea. And like other companies spun out, you know, similar businesses. Uh, one of them sold for like $200 million, like four years later. So, you know, we were onto something, but we just weren't a fit for the capital provider. And then later in life, um, I bootstrapped a B2B SaaS business, super niche, never even had a hope of, of you know, raising from VCs or, or really even angels. It was um, very niche e-commerce uh, product. And I ran that, you know, bootstrapped it, didn't need anyone's permission to get started, ran that for about yeah. five years and uh, sold it to private equity um, for, you know, what was a, for me, life-changing outcome. Uh, so yeah. I said, Hey, okay, <laughs> there's these <laughs> kinds of great businesses. I know that venture capital is structurally unable to sort of fund these businesses. Let's see if we can square that circle. Yeah. I love yeah. that. So there's kind of like three dimensions that I'd love to dive in with you. Cause you know, you spent so much time thinking about this and I think it's such a fascinating topic. So the first angle is, um, I would love to hear you explain like what traditional venture math looks like and why those Venn diagrams don't overlap. Um, cause I think it's a concept a lot of people don't understand, right? There is a very specific business model behind venture capital that creates that, um, that problem. Number two angle that I'd like to dive into today is like, what are the long-term impacts of that? So I think we've gone through enough, um, cycles of venture capital where we get to see like what ends up being useful, what ends up dying, et cetera. And I think we're starting to get a pretty good map of what types of problems venture capital is good at fixing and what things are getting left behind, right? Like the macro impact of these certain types of businesses that are just kind of atrophying because there's not a whole lot of funding. And then third, I'll, I'll go through and remind us of these things. I'm just like laying out a roadmap for ourselves, yeah. really. Um, yeah. Third, because you, you touched on this at the end, and I think it's really fascinating, is to talk about like the difference in lifestyle as a founder of a venture-backed company versus a bootstrap company, right? Like, I think there are real trade-offs and real decisions to make. And I think the most famous um, uh, comment or, uh, yeah, let's say, con I think the most famous comment on the venture math is like, if you do the math and you're like, okay, the founders, you know, at X, it was worth this much. And if they would have sold with this much dilution, they would have made this much money, but they stayed on for another seven years and the company was worth this much more, but there was this much more dilution and the founders ended up with like net net the same amount of money, right. For mm -hmm. like 10 additional years of work. So I want to kind of break that down and talk with you about the truth of that, you know, whether it's, um, intellectually honest about whether or not that is true. And if so, what the implications are, but I would love to start off with like the math, right? So I just want to mm -hmm. hear you explain like the venture capital math and how that's creating this Venn diagram, like you said, that just doesn't have the ability to fund lots of different types of companies. Sure. Yeah. No, I mean, it's something that, um, that we had to interrogate pretty intensely as we were, you know, building the thesis for this fund, which is, you know, are we just running straight into a, a brick wall law of physics that this stuff just doesn't work. <laughs> so, um, the, the basic sense of it is, I think it's, it's important to start with like, what is the job to be done of these kinds of funds, right? What yeah. are their LPs, the people who invest the money and give them the money to invest? What are, what are we trying to do for them? And historically the way that venture capital has fit into that, piece of the puzzle is you have these large institutional LPs, you have like foundations, you have a university yeah. endowments, these pools of, you know, billions of dollars um, that would invest a very small percentage of their total assets under management into a couple of venture funds. And the idea is like, I'm going to give you, you know, a half a percent of my total capital, 
But if yeah. you, and so if you go to zero, that's not a big deal. But if you generate like a 10X fund or a 12X fund or a 30X fund, that's going to move the needle for my annual returns, right? Yeah. So it was about like having a sort of uncorrelated and potentially large relative to the capital that you outlaid um, yeah. sort of feedback loop to the LPs. So then, yeah. you know, venture funds are like, okay, well, that's my job. How do I optimize my chances of, you know, getting a huge outlier fund, right? A lot of people talk about like 3X as being the hurdle, but it's not what, what venture funds are optimizing for to return three yeah. times the money that they raised. Um, they're yeah. trying to build a 5X, 10X, you know, 15, 20X fund um, yeah. by backing, you know, massive outliers. And so that's what they're optimizing for. They're saying, hey, you know, if I can trade percentage points chances of not going to zero, if I can trade those percentage points chances for a smaller but more you know, likely chance of hitting a huge outlier fund, I'm going to make that bet kind of over and over again, right? Yeah. And so then what happened is folks, I think, you know, I think I really started to see this like around five years ago or so, maybe a bit earlier than that, but people started looking historically at venture portfolios and saying, okay, where do the returns come from? And if you look historically, what you see is this thing called the power law, which is like yeah. almost all the returns in a particular venture fund came from a very small number of investments, you know, one, yeah. two, three out of, you know, 30, 50, 100 were the only ones that really mattered. And so they kind of looked at this and said, okay, you know, my job is to generate an outlier fund. Um, historically, the way that you generate an outlier fund has been to have individual outlier investments, right? Grand slam outcomes, your Uber, your Airbnb, these kinds of things. Um, and so how do I optimize for that? And so that's basically the math that has fed through into the investment decisions that most venture funds are making, which is, you know, yeah. I just don't care if you have a very strong chance, not I, <laughs> most venture funds yeah, yeah. Just don't care if you have a really strong chance at building a 50 million or $100 million fund. It's just not, that's not what they're optimizing for. They're saying, I want you to take as much risk as possible to generate the largest possible outcome so that I can do my job for my LPs. Um, and maybe the last piece of the puzzle there is what many folks concluded, I think prior to, to ComFund, is that this power law was kind of like a law of physics. They were like, look, you know, early stage startups are just super risky. Most of them are gonna fail. You really can't change the risk profile. So the only way that you can succeed is to have the largest possible outlier outcomes. You just can't yeah. change the shape of the curve. That's what a lot of people believe. And that's, I think, the fundamental thing that we're questioning with our fund is, you know, is the risk of these businesses a law of physics that's immutable, or is it a series of feedback loops that can be sort of turned in the other direction as well? Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think it's a great overview. And I mean, one thing from my perspective I would add to that is this power law game. And there's also this pattern recognition loop that gets run over the top, right? So you have all of these people who, and venture capital is like very in vogue right now, right? It's like the number one job MBAs want. So you have all these like smart enterprising people who are coming into venture capital and they're running this pattern recognition loop of like, what were the outliers most recently, right? And then they're going out and looking for those same things. And I think what's being missed and why venture capital has this natural tendency to become very myopic is when Airbnb IPO'd, when Uber IPO'd, uh, Figma got purchased by Adobe, those companies all make sense in the modern day context. At the time of original investment, so for the actual investors who did a thousand X return on the seed round, the pre-seed round, et cetera, those companies were absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. And so it's like, yeah. it's hard to remind yourself, like I always remind myself of Paul Graham's like famous email thread to Fred Wilson that he like reposts every year just to rub it in Fred Wilson's face where he's like, I promise you, you want to come into this deal, right? Like it's like a multi-billion dollar email thread that Fred basically passed on and said like, no, there's no way. Um, I like Chris Saka is very famous for passing on Airbnb and saying like, no way would I ever invest in this company. Like people are going to get, you know, assaulted and murdered in these places, whatever, which turned out to be true. But what everybody missed was, they 
vastly underestimated the size that market could be because it was totally new. Mm-hmm. And yeah. um, I think like there's this on top of this like obsession with the power law curve, there's this pattern recognition function that's like further driving the myopia of like, I'm looking for the next Brian Chensky. And it's like, well, Brian Chensky was a real outlier at the time that that check was written because everybody was looking for like the 10 years before executive who like wore a suit and had business meetings in Dallas and Chicago, like that type of like old rough and tumble businessman. And Brian Chensky was like an Olympic lifter design student that YC decided to take a bet on. So it's like, what's that version today that seems absolutely ridiculous, but in 10 years could actually pan out to be big. Um, And that's what I think is like the really hard job on that power curve is you have to be wrong for a really long time. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. Um, <clears throat> so, okay. So we've broken down the math, right? And it's basically that there's a lot of companies um, because of the market size or because of like how exciting of an industry it is or how fast it's growing, et cetera, that, you know, probably map out to a, let's say 50 to $250 million exit. Um, and venture firms are just passing over that. And we've heard this, it's become like a trope now, right? Of like, oh, the market's just not big enough, right? Like mm-hmm. not a big enough market. It's not venture backable. There's all these terms that are used now. Um, I, I'd love to talk about like the macro impact of like, there's a lot of areas of the world that I think are really hurting because of the lack of funding to solutions inside of that space. And I think like for me, I'd love to hear your thoughts, but I think the physical world in particular has like really fallen behind on innovation because it falls into this camp. Like it's not as scalable. It takes a lot more work. The potential market size is not as large as just like a piece of software that five engineers can whip together. But <laughs> like on anyone who's listening way home from work today, there's probably a thousand different things you'll pass by in your car that could fit, could be fixed for the better. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a big part of our thesis. I think it's a real crisis, to be honest, um, a crisis of entrepreneurship that, you know, the <coughs> I mean, w- one dynamic of that, that that we've highlighted is that um, when you think about this generation of uh, entrepreneurs, kind of whatever age they are, like let's say they started in the last couple of years, um, yeah. what, are, what are the opportunities for them versus what were the opportunities, you know, 15, 20 years ago? And, or like my parents' generation or something like that. Um, yeah. In my parents' generation, it was all retail-based, right? Like most of the entrepreneurs that you would know in your town that you know were worth 10, 20, 50 million dollars, they did it by building a network of car dealerships or yeah. a local health food supply chain or something like that. You know, a lot of like physical infrastructure kind of stuff was how you became a successful entrepreneur who could invest in other entrepreneurs who could do all the stuff that is like valuable to have, you know, successful entrepreneurs in your community. And they had a natural capital partner, which was banks. Banks were very good at underwriting real estate. Right. And so like my dad had a guitar shop and, you know, he was able to like walk into a bank (coughs) with, you know, basically nothing but a business plan and get a really sizable check to go and like, you know, rent a building, fill it full of guitars and sell it to people. And the opportunity set for entrepreneurs right now is shifting dramatically in favor of these very asset light types of businesses, right? You know, you're going to build a SaaS business, you're going to build a custom CRM for car dealerships, you're going to build, you know, logistic software for health food supply chain, that sort of stuff. And those are great. (laughs) They're scalable. They're, you know, a lot easier, a lot lower risk than, you know, launching something in retail. But they really have no natural capital partners if they're not, you know, quote unquote, venture scale. VC has been the only sort of form of capital that invests in early stage entrepreneurs doing stuff that doesn't have physical assets that you can underwrite against. And I think that's really skewed things um, in a couple different bad ways. I mean, I think that, first of all, to your point, there's a ton of opportunities that just have no resources or, or capital being provided to them. I also think that there's a little bit too much um, 
I mean, you had made this point of like, there's just too much gravity around venture capital right now. Like too many smart people that could be building something else, realize yeah. a pathway to raising, you know, $10 million for this idea is, is, is good. And they're going to be able to pay themselves a nice salary, even as they, you know, potentially build an incredible company. Um, yeah. And it's just drawing too much talent, I think, um, to, to try things that are really not, in my opinion, a good fit for for venture. I think venture capital, when it's done well, when it's taking true moonshot bets, is a fantastic thing. But when you see people coming in and building like a you know um, customer support B two B SaaS, they don't really need fifteen million dollars of venture capital. It's not a moonshot bet, right? <laughs> like yeah, this is yeah. a much more sort of middle of the road, you know, just entrepreneurial venture. And so I'd like to see you know folks taking a different path have, you know, more and more resources so that it's just like more of a true decision versus, well, there's really only one game in town, so we may as well play it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really interesting. So I was listening, I think it was Cam, guy from Slow Ventures, um, and made a very similar point to what you made where he was like, look, if we're honest with ourselves, 90% of venture capital right now is not venture capital. It's small business, fund. Yeah. it's small business equity funding, right? He's like venture capital is really reserved for the truly crazy stuff that has like a 1% chance to succeed, right? It was like, Hey, we're a company of, you know, former SpaceX engineers that are going to try to launch a rocket up into space, redirect an asteroid to land on this part of earth that we own. And then we're going to mine all the resources. Like, all right, fuck yeah, that's venture capital. Let's, yeah. let's <laughs> fucking give it a go. And let's spend the next 20 years trying to figure out if that can actually happen. Whereas you said, it's like, you know, we're going to make customer service calls 25% more effective via this one feature of software. It's like, that's cool and it's needed. Um, but like you said, there's sort of this gap of funding for that type of incremental improvement on processes, which I think is important. Like you can't just have moonshots and you can't just have incremental improvement. I think you need both. Like you need someone who's trying to break through the barrier and figure out where new avenues are but then you need a lot of people who are like shoring up the edges and like applying it's one interesting thing about technology growth is like it takes five times as long for technology to actually be implemented into the market as it does to be invented there's tons mm. of amazing technologies that's just sitting on the shelves of researchers or um, universities labs etc and it's like no one's picked it up and said like oh i'm gonna spend the next 10 years applying this technology to this particular thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, we, we call that, um, in our thesis, we call that, you know, the shift to the deployment age of software. Um, and yeah. it's kind of a reference to this S <coughs> adoption curve, right? Where you have this kind of like frenzied period where all this new technology is getting created and there's all kinds of winner take all opportunities and huge risk and, you know, huge outcomes. And then you get kind of over the top of the curve and it's much more about lower risk things where you're just taking the fruits of that innovation and applying yeah. it to every single sector of the economy. You can look at stuff like electrification for, for sort of yeah. similar trajectories. And our argument is that specifically with software, um, we're, we're rounding that curve, right? Where there just aren't the sort of like Twitter, Salesforce, Shopify type of, you know, greenfield opportunities where you can just build the first thing and capture this massive <laughs> market. And it's yeah. much more about niching down, finding smaller opportunities where you can be, you know, materially better not just i wouldn't even say just incrementally but um yeah. you know not not the same category of of opportunity yeah like filling in all the you know cracks and and gaps and yeah like one of I the mean, things we do all day long is we invest in vertically focused niche b2b SaaS. so there's still tons of industries out there where you know they're still using sticky notes and spreadsheets and stuff to manage their operations some entrepreneur who knows that industry well meets up with someone who you know knows how to write code and they build kind of custom b2b SaaS for some part of the construction industry or the food safety production you know back end or you know shipping logistics and things like that like that's what we love to to, to make bets on and most of those i would argue are not a fit for you know really venture capital being done well right um so yeah some of them are. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's, you know, there's these edge cases, but yeah. I think there's 
probably more innovation than not that's being overlooked right now because it falls into like too niche of a space and yeah. building the financial infrastructure to allow that to happen. I mean, one thing I like, so, all right, one last question on this topic is like, so given that venture math, which you talked about, like this power curve, right? Like a big part of quote unquote buying the lottery tickets on these moonshot ideas is that like, you know, nine out of 10 of these bets are going to go to zero. So not only do I need the one to win, win, I need it to win really big because it's got to do the heavy lifting of all the other nine companies that didn't make it not only to cover that loss, but also to create the returns. Um, and so it's sort of built into the math. So do you guys have a different deal structure to help change the motivation with the math? We do have a, a deal structure that we've created, but I would say that's not the crux of how we tackle this problem. Um, you know, fundamentally, uh, what what you will find is if you talk to a lot, I mean, I'm sure you talked to a lot of folks, but like I was shocked at how many people with a straight face would tell me like, no, 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 this is a law of physics. Like whether you are starting a bakery or a, you know, robotics facility in space, you're going to have yeah. the same very, very high failure rate. And so the only thing you can do is maximize the outcomes with the few that succeed. Um, and I just don't think that's true. Um, fundamentally, yeah. I think there's a lot of feedback loops that, um, you know, this sort of overall playbook of raising venture capital entails that both maximizes your chance of an outlier outcome, but also maximizes your chance of, of failing and going to zero. Um, and so that's, you can start to think of those pretty obviously. It's about like, how aggressively do you hire, right? What's your CAC to LTV ratio and what's a safe sort of cushion there? Um, you know, his, this is less so uh, post-pandemic, but, you know, before it was all about you had to hire everyone in San Francisco or New York, even if that meant you had to pay absolute top, you know, 1% salaries, right? All these kinds of things that you're basically doubling down on risk, right? You're saying, yeah. you know, we are going to, we're going to maximize our risk here. And when you look at the bootstrap sort of world, which is, you know, the only comparator before um, funds like Comfund came along, uh, you know, they were just doing stuff that just dialed that knob back a bit, right? They were hiring a little bit less aggressively. They were yeah. leaving themselves more cushion in how aggressively they invested in customer acquisition. They were growing at a more sustainable pace. They were um, hiring remote teams from all over the world at a fraction of the cost of, you know, having yeah. everybody at an office in SF. And I think that's pretty obvious that that both probably capped their upside to some extent, even though you did have a few like massive outliers and MailChimp and WordPress and stuff like that. But, you know, yeah. like it, it made it less likely that they were going to ever be worth 10 billion, but it also made it less likely they were going to fail in the first 18 months. And so that's kind of yeah. fundamentally what we're testing is, are there sort of multiple optimal points on the curve or is there literally just the one you know maximize power law and that's the only thing you can do and so that's the fundamental sort of test that we're running yeah i like that i mean i think it's a really interesting perspective on like there is a power curve if you look at these data sets but um is venture capital responsible for not only the winners in the curve, but also the companies that died, right? Like how many yeah. companies unnecessarily died because they were pursuing this hyper aggressive, very compressed timeline strategy. Um, you know, in some cases, I think one of my, um, one of my biggest observations on venture capital is there tends to be this like hot potato dynamic sometimes of like, we're going to compress the timeline. We're going to grow as fast as possible. And then, you know, our liquidity is like, we're just going to throw the hot potato to the public markets or to an acquirer or whatever. And we're out, right? Like we're good to go. We did our job. Um, and you know, there are probably just as many examples of companies that succeeded with venture capital that died because of venture capital or died because maybe not specifically because of venture capital. And, but there are a lot of companies I think that died because they just took on way too much money and it created a lot of really adverse, motivations and incentive systems inside the company but you know they died because they were too aggressive they made you know moves too fast um etc so i think it is interesting to think about like well, what if we don't put that kind of pressure on companies it makes me think of the lindy effect mm. right mm -hmm. like the longer something is around the more likely it is to stay around and it's like 
what if we just try to build a company that'll last for 50 years, right? And our main motivation isn't year on year growth, but just lasting power. Like, yep. can you build, can you build a company that you could hand over to your kids? And it's like, Hey, this company produces, it makes $10 million in profit a year, which you can invest in whatever you want to continue growing. You know, it takes care of all of our employees. You know, they have three months of paid maternity leave. We have daycare on campus. They, you know, retire with a full pension, like all these different things. Um, I think yeah. it's interesting to like reincorporate those types of goals into companies as opposed to just like, how can I make a trillion dollars as fast as possible? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think one way I've characterized this dynamic is, um, you know, traditionally there's been this sort of almost like pejorative way of, of framing um, whether or not founders are being ambitious by, by the venture community, right? They would say like, there's two ways you can go. You can go like, you can be ambitious and raise a bunch of, you know, venture capital <coughs> and build a multi-billion dollar company, or you can just like chillax and build this like lifestyle business, you know, which is just yeah, fundamentally like, unambitious. Hang out in Bali uh, and Yeah, around, and I yeah. think that there is another route that I call being long-term ambitious, right? Which is thinking about the, to your exact point, like, the the value of just staying in the game and getting to continue to compound you know the value the lessons learned the team all that sort of stuff over time and saying yeah. you know like one example of this is if if you just take this from a personal perspective you say like okay let's do a, a post-mortem, right? On uh, 20 years from now, I haven't hit the kind of goals I have for myself personally, professionally, all that sort of stuff. What's the like most likely thing to have derailed me? And that's gonna be almost, most people are gonna say burnout, right? It's, gonna, yeah. it's not gonna be any one thing that made you sort of 5% worse year over year or not waking up at you know 5 a.m. instead of 6 a.m. It's gonna be that you ran yourself into the ground and then you completely hardcore burned out somewhere along that 20-year trajectory. So if you're long-term ambitious, you say, I wanna get to my 20-year goals, you should have pretty much at the top of your list, don't burn out, right? And that should yeah. flow through to how you make decisions. And I think there's a similar kind of effect for, for companies that can be long-term ambitious, um, you know, even if that doesn't mean sort of the, the hyper growth kind of trajectory. Yeah. No, I love that. Yeah. And I mean, I've, I'm sure you have as well. I had, I mean, I was at rocket internet, which, you know, has a famous reputation of not being a particularly balanced workplace. And I've spent yeah. my twenties, you know, grinding my face off with, very hard charging Germans. And, uh, I mean, I ended up in the hospital in India. Um, and that was like a real wake up call, like in my mid twenties. And the doctor was like, you're like the most unhealthy 25 year old I've ever met. Like, oh well, I don't know what you're doing, but you need to stop doing it. <laughs> and so, you know, I wrapped up a project and I left and took a year off, um, and trained full time and did an Ironman, like just wanted to focus on getting my health back in order. But amazing. Yeah, I mean, it sent me back a year. Not not back. I mean, in retrospect, I think it was like a great year, and I learned a lot, but mm -hmm. um, it was potentially really detrimental. Yeah. I think, I mean, one observation, I'd love to hear your thoughts. So you've been in the venture game. You've obviously raised from LPs. I've raised from LPs, et cetera. So there are like three different types of LPs. You have institutionals who are like the big, big guys, uh, I think. Most people like drastically underestimate how big and powerful those organizations are, but endowments and pensions, I mean, these are 20, 30, 40, $50 billion pools of capital that are making huge decisions as to like who lives and who dies in the finance world. And then behind that you have family offices and that's like a huge spectrum from like super duper family offices all the way down to, you know, they're like multifamily offices, right? Where it's like, Hey, you're not big enough to like run your own shop here, but we put like 10, you know, $50 million families together and we all run a shop. Mm -hmm. Um, an interesting thing that you talk about, about like long-term sustainability is like very rarely do I ever meet a family office and they made their generational money from some super flashy, like cool tech product, AI, this and that. It's usually the exact opposite. It's like, Oh, like every toilet, in Bangladesh comes from our family or like we sell nails. We're like the number one nail supplier and manufacturer in Southeast Asia or concrete, mm -hmm. or it's like all this like really boring stuff, but it's yep. like our family has been the only concrete supplier in, um, the Ukraine for 150 years. And it's right. like, what you, like you start to piece together like, Oh wow. Like 
all of the physical infrastructure around us is billions and billions of dollars of money every year. And like the families who have multifamily offices or family offices and are making money and have generational wealth, usually the families that control those supplies. So there is something to be said for like longer term patient. Most of the wealthy people you run into didn't get rich quick. They didn't get rich in one generation. They got wealthy over multiple generations of just continuing to grow really boring businesses. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's, it's fascinating. We have a lot of those conversations. Um, and I feel like, you know, one of the things I'd like to do with our fund is to create a huge number of those sort of family offices in the sense that, you know, I think um, the the approach that we are taking, which is to be capital efficient, don't, you know, raise capital opportunistically, never become dependent on it, grow at a steady pace that you can keep up without burning out your team and, you know, needing to sort of bet it all on, on, on red every, every quarter, um, <laughs> that, that that is actually the most likely path for talented entrepreneurs to generate, you know, generational wealth. Um, you know, it's not actually to your, I mean, you raised the point earlier of like, sometimes you do have this like true lose lose where, you know, you built a multi-billion dollar company, but you only owned a tiny percentage of it. So you made $25 million, which you could yeah. have made, you know, in a bootstrap <laughs> company just as easily. Um, but yeah. even if, you know, the numbers are not the same, right. Even if it is a, you know, you have a, a personal billion dollar outcome, I think most people, especially who don't come from, you know, family wealth, generational wealth, which is a lot of entrepreneurs, um, a, a lot of them would, they would very happily take a high percentage chance of being one of those family offices that you just described um, versus a sort of extremely low percentage chance of massive sort of wealth. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, a, it's a missed opportunity. Um, and, you know, I think um, a lot more entrepreneurs should be thinking about, you know, how to optimize around that. Yeah, I agree. I think I mean, I don't personally know, but I can say having spent time with people who fall in the category of like hyper wealthy, um, I, I don't think truly it's what anybody really wants. Yeah. Um, and anyone I know that has enough money to be like, wow, that's a lot of money, like uh, sort of begrudgingly. So they like <laughs> they deal and it's uh, and it, it sucks to say because it's like, you know, you talk about income disparity and spreading the wealth and everything, but it's like, it's, it, it really turns into a curse. And I think like mm -hmm. for more people to have a realistic chance of making 10, 15, 20, $25 million, right. And being able to like set the next generation of your family up for success without like completely ruining them in the, um, like hyper reality of generational wealth. Like that's the other, yeah, yeah like long-term effect is like Mark Zuckerberg's kids are fucked, right? Like they're never going to be able to live a normal life and that sucks for them. They didn't deserve that. Yeah. Um, but like there is something to be said for having so much money that it really takes away, I think an important developmental part of like your kids growing up and being able to like understand and empathize with the rest of the world. Yeah. Um, and, and I think it's like, it's, it's what more people actually want um, I think if you really boiled it down and had an honest conversation about like, if you could plan your life, your day to day, right? Like I bet you could accomplish exactly what your ideal life would be with. And, and <clears throat> not only just thinking about it in terms of like an exit, but like, Hey, what if you could build a company, which got you to a position where you had a team of 20 people, you're making $500,000 a year, no sweat. Right. And the company is running efficiently. You're growing 10% every year. It's challenging you but it's not taking away time from your kids. Like I think that would align with a lot of people's true ideal day to day. This is what I'd like my life to look like. I think that's right. Yeah. And, and I mean, although I, I agree with everything you just said, you know, I think, um, the more salient point than the like amount of money you can make choosing one path versus another is, you know, the fact that you, you only have one life. You only have so many five to 10 year bets you can make with it. And so it's about what's the kind of percentage chance that this actually works. Um, and that's something that I think is very overlooked. Um, I, I tweeted this a while ago, but it was a hard lesson I had to learn, which is, you know, a lot of times in this startup world, you hear like, go big or go home. And <laughs> most people don't think that like, most of the time, go big or go home means go home, 
go not, home. <laughs> right? Like most I saw of that. The, I saw that tweet from you. I like I like that a lot. <laughs> yeah. And it's it's an important thing to recognize, which is like you're signing up for something that, you know, nine <laughs> times out of ten, you're gonna spend five to ten years on and get fundamentally nothing from. And then how many of those at bats do you wanna take, you know, versus something that maybe has a much higher percentage chance. And then one other thing is that like those sort of um like never have to think about rent again kind of outcomes also then feed into the ability to take more moonshot outcomes right so you yeah know, i actually did like this little research project a while ago i was looking through like a lot of the you know moonshot type of of outcomes and entrepreneurs and a surprising number of those entrepreneurs had some sort of you know few million dollars or 10 12 million dollar outcomes uh, before they did this. So like the founder of Spotify <coughs> and sold it for like $2 million. Uh, yeah. The Colleton brothers from Stripe built a little app and sold it for like $6 million. Like a lot of these folks that we think of as these like, you know, young, ambitious moonshot entrepreneurs had actually already kind of gotten to the point of being kind of post post financial uh, before they decided to make that bet. So, you know, even if your goal is, hey, one day I want to, you know, build something that's going to be like truly world changing and make a dent in the universe. I would argue that, you know, getting a win uh, like, you know, what we see in our portfolio under your belt might make might actually be the best first step on that path. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I always tell people, like Elon Musk, I think is a good example. It's like Elon deserved, like he earned the right to build a rocket ship company because he basically funded it himself, right? Like no first time entrepreneur is going out to the market and being like, hey, I don't know anything about rocket ships. Fund me to build it. He was like, no, I made all this PayPal money and I'm going to spend yep. it all on blowing things up in the middle of the Pacific Ocean because that's what I want to do. And it's like, fuck, man, it's your money. Do whatever you want, right? Yeah. Um, and even before yeah. PayPal, actually, I don't know if you know about Zip2, right, which was this yeah, like yeah. much more pedantic sort of just like geog geographic based classified ads, right, not yeah. a moonshot at all. And they sold that yeah. for like $20 million or something like that. Yeah. So it's, it's, yeah. yeah, so he he like stacked three is like Zip2 and then um, zero or whatever he called it that got acquired into PayPal and then had the bigger PayPal exit and yep. basically like doubled down again and poured all of that into Tesla, SolarCity and SpaceX. Totally. So like it was a yeah. journey to get there. I think it's like a, it's a big confidence builder too, right? Like to be able to like start a company, make revenue, pay employees, create jobs, um, you know, and then have a five, 10, $15 million exit. I mean, that's huge in terms of overcoming limiting beliefs of like what's yeah. actually possible if you just like start doing stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love that. So, I mean, I usually ask people like what gets you excited, um, and wake up in the morning, but I think it's pretty clear, like the, your, your excitement and your exuberance for, you know, helping build out, um, uh, better infrastructure around this particular asset class comes through really, really clearly. Um, yeah. I guess for founders who are listening to this, like what is great look like for you when you're looking at a deal at a comp fund, like. What are you looking for? Like if founders are thinking about like, hey, this really resonates with me, like I wanna go pitch Calm Fund. Um, what, what are you looking for them to bring to the table? Yeah, so I think um, one of the tenets of how I think about investing is, you know, uh, we touched on this a little bit, but like there is this dynamic in venture capital that that generates a herd mentality, right? And it's because, you know, the, the business model is, okay, I'm gonna invest in you at seed, but like my success metric is how many of you go on and raise a series A and then a series B and then a series C. So you get this kind of reflexive feedback loop where you have to care what series A investors care about, right? If you just yeah. make bets that like you think are great, but series A's investors yeah. hate, then as a seed yeah. venture investor, you're going to fail because none of your companies are going to get funded. So you yeah, end your fund up through rate like, sucks. Yeah, you end up all like calibrating you know, <coughs> in, in similar directions. Obviously, not everybody in the same, but it does create these herds. And so I think one of the liberating parts about our thesis is that we're very comfortable being what I call first check, last check. You know, we're comfortable like, hey, I need, you know, 300 to $500,000 to build this business. And then before that money runs out, I'm going to get to break even and I'm going to grow it, you know, from its own cash flows from there. That's awesome for us. We love that. And so I'm looking for opportunities primarily where I feel like 
I'm genuinely being additive to the ecosystem where it's like, this is an opportunity that because of how unique our thesis is, only we really can make this bet. And so we are the best partner for, uh, for a founder. And so that's why like, you know, we recently got some stats on this, so I have them top of mind, but uh, like 88% of our investments in the last three years, we've been either the lead investor or the sole investor, which is, you know, yeah. astronomically high for, for an early stage investor. Yeah. Um, you know, and a, about a third of the companies that applied for funding with us were exclusively applying for funding with us with no other, you know, funding partners. And so that's kind of one thing I look for, which is opportunities that it's like, so, so one thing is we ask a lot of the same questions that a traditional early stage VC would ask in terms of like, let's look at the market. But we come to different conclusions, right? We talked about how in venture, you know, you want the, the largest possible market, right? You want to have the biggest possible potential outcome. Um, we are actually kind of the opposite. Like, we actually avoid really, really hot and really, really huge markets. One of the things we ask ourselves is, can they build a micro-monopoly? Right. Like if you are talking about going back to like niche vertical B2B SaaS, if you can build the absolute best product in a particular part of the film industry production stack, you can be the, you know, the market leader and you can just run away with market share because nobody is really incentivized to come and compete with you for that market. Right. Sequoia is yeah. not going to put 30 million behind a competitor and Microsoft's not going to decide to release a free version of your product because the market is just yeah. too small fundamentally for, for those players. So that's kind of like one example of how we kind of work through the, the standard playbook. We yeah. have a lot of stuff that looks the same. Um, you know, we think a lot about founder unfair advantages, right? So what makes this mm -hmm. founder sort of uniquely able to, to tackle this opportunity versus a generic talented person. Um, but yeah, the, the big thing is just, you know, are, are we really going to be the only natural partner for this opportunity? Um, at least at this phase, right? We're investing early enough that that can change, right? We might be yeah. the only partner at the early phase, but then they unlock some, you know, uh, growth trajectory or, or adjacent market that actually they want to go and raise VC. And we've had portfolio companies raise series A's and stuff like that. So um, it's not out of the question, but, but that's kind of how we think about it. I love that. Yeah. It must be cool to like meet a team that you really like and they're like, hey, you're like the only place we'd come to for funding. I mean, that must feel cool from like a product market fit perspective, right? Yeah, it's, it's the best. It's the best thing is when, you know, just somebody shows up and they've built a product that, you know, like Comfund is the natural and only partner for them to work with. And, you know, we can just write the check and help them succeed. Love that. So yeah. how do you guys report? I mean, so one of the challenges inside of venture capital for people you know, to kind of go in, under the hood and a little bit about how the interactions between a fund and LPs work. So on a quarterly basis, you're updating your LPs and saying, hey, here's the mark to market value of the investment we've made, right? And, you know, traditionally there's a J curve while you're writing checks, um, the value actually dips below one and then you start to outrun that as your companies do well. Traditionally, I mean, the, the markup strategy or formula for funds is like when somebody else invests in one of our companies after us, they've set a price and we yeah. mark our holdings up to that price and that's how we value our fund. So given that you guys aren't really pursuing like getting markups as fast as possible, do you run uh, a different valuation process to update your investors? Because that's like, that that's one of the things I see puts the most pressure on funds to want to fund as fast as possible is like, I have to show not only my existing LPs, but I'm going to go out and raise another fund. I have to show those LPs that I'm doing a really good job. So I need markups fast. I need markups high, right? Like I just need to go get these companies funded. Um, how do you guys manage that process? Yeah, it's a good question. And I mean, one thing I'd point out is that you're, you know, you're dead on that this is how it's traditionally been done. I do think we're in a moment right now where um, folks are realizing some of the drawbacks of, of that particular approach. <laughs> yeah, sure. A lot of LPs Definitely. are looking at their mark to market and saying like, okay, I mean, we know these things are not worth anywhere near as much as they're currently marked to. Are we allowed yeah. to mark them down? How do we mark them down? How do we kind of like, you know, rectify the situation? So it's an interesting time to be sort of reevaluating this stuff a little bit more from first principles. Um, yeah. You're dead, right? That like, you know, given that we, 
we don't discourage our portfolio companies from raising follow-on capital at all, um, but you know, it's not something we optimize for. So the vast majority yeah. of our portfolio has not raised any round of capital um, after after we invested, even you know the the earlier ones that have you know three years under their belt. Um, and so we definitely don't want our you know KPI to be something that we're completely not optimizing for. Um, our approach so far has just been to be really transparent with a formula that we use um, to basically value the company as a sort of as converted basis. So, you know, if we were liquidating our position in the company right now, um, you know, what do we think that would be valued at? And in large part, that's driven by revenue milestones, right? So, yeah. you know, it, you, you went from uh, $5,000 a month in, in revenue to, you know, 5 million a year. Um, obviously you're more valuable, <laughs> um, and exactly how, how valuable and our stake is in the company is more valuable. Um, exactly how much more valuable is, you know, a little bit more art than science, but we've just basically taken this approach of like, we have a whole like flow chart diagram that we share with our, <coughs> like, here's the methodology we're using. This is how we're going to yeah. report it. Um, do with it what you will, uh, to be honest. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So it's a little bit more work, but it's much more based on the intrinsic value of a company versus the option value, right? Cause exactly. I mean, the valuation of the latest fundraising round is really only the option value on a, on an open market or a mm -hmm. semi open market. Um, yep. it doesn't really have anything to do with the intrinsic value of the company as we've seen time and time again with all sorts of wacky, you know, fundraising rounds that happen. Yeah. Yeah. So I think we've covered everything. I mean, I laid out that at the time when I was doing it, I felt like I got really into the weeds laying out that agenda, but I feel like we covered all the topics. Um, I mean, we hit on the last point, I think throughout the conversation about just the lifestyle um, mm -hmm. of, you know, a bootstrapped or a calm company, as you say, versus like a traditional VC backed company. I mean, I'd be interested to hear your perspective. Like, it sounds like you're getting really good feedback from the market. I mean, how often are you talking to founders and they're saying like, Hey Tyler, I'm so glad that you're building this. Like I'm, you know, I, I've either done the VC game and I'm done with it. I don't want to build a company like that anymore. Or this is my first company and I have no interest in getting into that race at all. Like what has the feedback been from your founders in terms of what you're building and how you're, you're filling a niche? Yeah, I mean, entrepreneurs inherently love options, right? They love optionality. So they love to see, you know, whereas it looked like there was only one path, um, hey, yeah. maybe there's two or three or four options and I can choose which one to take. Um, so by and large, we get, you know, incredible feedback from from entrepreneurs um, in our portfolio, people who are not a fit for our portfolio. The vast majority of our capital so far has come from uh, entrepreneurs as well that, you know, either built these kinds of companies and so know how awesome they are and, and want to help others build them. Um, or in a surprising number of cases, people who are actually successful in venture-backed outcomes and still are like, you know, I actually really wish I had built a company along these <laughs> lines. Um, it's yeah. actually pretty surprising um, how much people don't over-index on their own success and are still able to say, like, this was actually not the best way for me to, like, spend 10 years of my life. Um, <laughs> not to say that always, you know, I'm not trying to, like, get on here and, and criticize, um, but there is a, a large number of folks who um, who really wish that they had built a company this way. Um, so, yeah, in general, I mean, I think, you know, we do get a, a lot of good feedback from entrepreneurs. I think you, you touched on it, you know, correctly, which is that, building a sort of calm, profitable company that, you know, steadily grows and, and pays the bills and has happy employees and happy customers is really the dream of most entrepreneurs. There's a, a very small subset for whom that would be, you know, torture and they have to be, you know, going for the absolute moonshot opportunities. But the vast, vast majority of even like ambitious entrepreneurs, really what they want to build is is something that is their version of, of a calm company. So it's been exciting to see, you know, how much support we've gotten from from entrepreneurs. You know, funds are always kind of like I think funds are always constrained by one of three things. You're either constrained by not enough capital, you're constrained by not enough GP bandwidth to make decisions, or you're constrained by deal flow. And we've been super lucky that the third one has just never been a problem. We've always had yeah. like a fire hose of entrepreneurs who <laughs> love the model and want to work with us and, and you know, <laughs> figuring out the other two uh, parts of the equation to, to scale. So, yeah. 
I love that. And it, I mean, it resonates with me a lot. I grew up in a household with, I mean, my dad was an entrepreneur. Um, in 2007, he started a software company, um, which per your definition, I think would be, you know, a calm company. Right. And I, I asked him throughout his career, um, you know, and I still ask him, like my dad is my number one advisor that I talk to. You know, I always ask him like, like what got you up in the morning? Like, you know, you were building software for banks. Um, mm-hmm. Like, what was exciting about that? Like, what got you up in the morning? And he's like, look, what got me up in the morning is like, every year we added 15 new jobs to the company that paid people a salary to support their family and send their kids to school. And we offered uh, daycare stipends, right? And we had scholarships for employees, kids who were going to school. And like, I got to see how powerful it was for people to build a career where they could grow and make good money and be taken care of, et cetera. And it was like such a different, it's always, I always ask my dad that question over and over again, because I find such a refreshing change in perspective from what we tend to hear in the market now. Right. Which is like this sort of obsession with like self actualization. It's like, I built this company because I'm the smartest person alive, or I really wanted to solve this problem as opposed to like, no, I wanted to use my skills to create jobs for people who, may not be able to do, you know, maybe they don't have the disposition or the risk tolerance to build a company themselves, but I want to create good job opportunities for them. I want to be a part of my community. Um, and I always find it like really refreshing. And it's, I mean, the reason I reached out to you is because I've been watching Calm and like always, since the first time I saw you on Twitter, it's like always resonated with me that like my dad would really like this guy. That's high praise. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, just like the impact, you know, I think th- there's an obsession with like making impact in this like huge concentric circle of being like famous on the internet. And I think what a lot of people miss is like the impact that really matters are like the small concentric circles of people that you interact with on a daily basis. Yeah, that's um, a good point. I love that perspective. And I think it's really cool to see venture maturing to a place where new models are starting to come out, right? Like just in hearing you talk, it's like there's no, there's nothing against traditional venture and like backing moonshot ideas and founders who want to build companies that could potentially be worth billions of dollars, but that's not mutually exclusive to there are founders who want to do different things and want like a little bit different structure and incentives. And it's cool to see it diversifying and allowing uh, a, a wider range of things to happen. Thanks. I really appreciate that. <laughs> Very kind words. <laughs> of course. Um, so Tyler, how do people, what's the best way for founders to get in touch with you and, you know, learn more about calm and, um, you know, show you what they're building. Yeah. I mean, um, to learn more about us, um, you know, I personally, and, and the fund are both, uh, we're very active on Twitter. So I'm at Tyler Tringus, um, at calm fund is the fund. Um, if you go to calmfund.com, so C A L M F U N D.com, um, I, I've personally written something like 200,000 words uh, on that website. Um, so we're yeah. very, very sort of transparent with like how we work, what we're looking for, all that sort of stuff. So if you just click through, if, if you're interested in, in applying for investment, you'll find like a for founders page. And then we have a, um, you know, we, we don't do the whole warm intro thing or whatever. We just have an open application process where we ask you basically the same questions we would ask you on a cold intro call. Um, and that's how we get the conversation started from there. So, um, yeah those spots fantastic yeah. well Tyler this has been awesome I really appreciate you coming on I know you're a busy guy and spending an hour sharing more about calm and and what you're building thanks so much for the time thank you I appreciate it this was really fun so last question before you leave uh, books on the shelf what have you been reading lately uh, that's a very good question um, <laughs> <laughs> you know I've actually been, I've actually turned to to books very lately um, as a sort of uh, escape. I end up doing a lot of of reading and writing as part of my day to day, and so the idea of then like getting a, a nonfiction book <laughs> has been a little challenging yeah. lately. Um, so yeah. I've been actually optimizing for like fiction. Um, so yeah. I read the Expanse series uh, recently. Really, yeah. really cool. Nice. Sort of near term sci fi. Um, yeah. Very, very good to just sort of reboot at the end of the day so highly recommend that it's like seven eight nine books i don't even know at this point so yeah uh, it's quite a series if you haven't if you haven't read it you're in for a treat yeah we'll find it comforting that on both of my shows early days is with founders and the deal is with 
VCs, mm-hmm. I would say 25% of people don't read. So they're like, I yeah. read so many articles and so much stuff throughout the day that I don't read as a hobby. The other 75% exclusively fiction. So mm. hmm. interesting. very few people that I talk to in this practice actually read nonfiction because they're like, I have such an overwhelming amount of information come my way. I just don't have the, I don't have the capacity to like retain anything additional. So I just read to like open my brain back up and kind of get back into flow. It gets harder to justify it too when you have all these great like compression algorithms that are synthesizing information in much less dense formats for you. You know, you can follow great <laughs> Twitter accounts that, you know, basically yeah. can keep you up to speed on a particular industry far better than, you know, picking up a handful of, of, of books about the topic. Um, and then yeah. also, you know, entrepreneurs pitching us <laughs> maybe the best thing about this job is that, you know, an entrepreneur yeah. comes and compresses like five, 10, 25 years of learnings about a particular industry into, you know, a pitch deck and an hour call. <laughs> you're like, I don't need to read anything about this. This guy already did all the work for me or, or gal, you know? Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. I, uh, good problem. I talked to Michelle Yu, um, a founder this morning, and she said almost the same thing. She was like, I can't justify nonfiction anymore. She's like, it's just too verbose. It's like, get to the point. There doesn't need to be a whole book around this. Um, and anyway, uh, now that we've batched that was... books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Screw, okay, screw nonfiction. Still read them. <laughs> um, well, Tyler, this has been awesome. I really appreciate it. Um, I'm really proud of us for not making any Tyler, Tyler jokes. Um, and, uh, I really enjoyed the conversation. I wish you guys the best of luck at, calm fund and uh look forward to seeing you guys continue to grow and create opportunities for great founders yeah likewise thanks so much awesome we'll talk soon Tyler. thanks a lot hey everybody it's tyler again thanks so much for listening and hope you enjoyed this episode if you're interested in building a company that raises from investors like the one you just heard speak we would love to help To learn more about our founder studios that we run around the world, come check us out at antler.co.